Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. There are just five days remaining in New York City's mayoral primaries, and then, non-New York listeners, you will surely never have to hear about New York again. Of course, I'm kidding. But as I mentioned earlier this month, part of the reason we are covering this race is that it serves as a big test of ideas within the Democratic Party. New York has lots of Democrats, and specifically, lots of different styles of Democrats. And a city is choosing someone to solve a laundry list of challenges as it emerges from the pandemic. Also, as we've discussed, further left Democrats have been struggling to break through. For much of the race, various moderate candidates have been dominating in the polls. And we've seen a similar dynamic play out in some races beyond New York this year as well. Today, we're going to hear from two people involved in progressive movements in New York about their thoughts on what's happening in the race and how progressivism is shaping politics more broadly. Here with me today is political science professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, Susan King. She's a member of the Democratic Socialists of America and volunteered on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's congressional campaign in 2018. Welcome, Susan. Hi, thanks for having me. Also here with us is Ross Barkhan, a writer and columnist for the socialist magazine Jacobin and The Guardian. He ran for New York State Senate in 2018, and he's the author of the new book, The Prince, Andrew Cuomo, Coronavirus, and the Fall of New York. Welcome, Ross. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. Awesome. So there are plenty of details that I want to get into, but just to start off, would you agree with how I've described this race that progressives and the left in general have struggled to break through in this mayoral race? I would say so. You know, right now there are four candidates who exist in the top tier and three of them have positioned themselves in some ways as moderates. And, and of course, it's more complicated than that. Even the so-called moderates will have left positions to left of where the party was even a few years ago. And there have been at different times two or three candidates positioning themselves in the progressive lane. But right now, Maya Wiley is the left one standing. She's been endorsed by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and she's become the standard bearer because two of the other candidates have faced difficulties. One was Scott Stringer, who was accused of a sexual assault, and then another candidate, Diane Morales, who's never going to win, but was gaining momentum. She had a very strange campaign implosion, which is quite confusing to talk about. So yes, I think generally speaking, it has been the moderate, tough on crime, pro-developer, pro-business candidates who have led in the polls and been in control. That being said, it may not end that way on June 22nd, but as of now, that has been largely the case in the mayoral race. I guess I agree with the idea that the self-styled progressive candidates aren't necessarily breaking through, but I don't know whether or not it's fair, and I hear this a lot in the media, to call this an election that serves as some kind of litmus test or even state of affairs when it comes to progressive politics in New York City for a couple of reasons. First of all, New York City in a crisis acts differently than New York City does in normal times. So we can think about after 9-11, we can't call New York City a Republican city, but it elected a Republican mayor. So we're now in a post-crisis situation. So New York City isn't sort of following its normal sort of set of values. And right now, there's been a lot of framing around public safety, but I don't even think that New York City 
necessarily is one at the grassroots level in which people are worried about public safety every day. I think people are worried much more about their basic needs, housing and jobs and that kind of thing in the post-COVID recovery. So it's interesting to me the way that the framing of the issues by both the media and the candidates has sort of dominated the discussion in a way that I'm not seeing when I talk to voters on the ground. And so I'm somebody who both talks about politics, but also volunteers and canvases. So that sort of puts me in a unique position. I don't hear this when I'm at the doors or I'm on the phones. The other thing, too, is that I would argue that there really wasn't very much of a progressive candidate running in this race at all. From the beginning, Scott Stringer is someone who successfully positioned himself in that way, but didn't necessarily have that kind of history as being more than sort of a center-left candidate. Diane Morales basically came from nowhere, had no history of being involved in progressive movements at all, and Maya Wiley as well positioned herself in that way. I've never heard of her before. Certainly, I'm not somebody who does the insider baseball game of knowing who's in City Hall, but I never heard of her before. She didn't really seek an endorsement from our union, the PSC CUNY. So to me, she can call herself a progressive and take those kinds of positions. But would I say we have a progressive candidate running like a Jumani Williams in the mayor's race? I would say no. I would agree with Susan's second point, which is that this field is not a terribly strong field. And there is not a strong left candidate at all. And it's important to note what Susan knows, the Democratic Socialists of America, I think, wisely endorsed no one in this race. And so the three candidates who are kind of the so-called standard bearers of the left all were flawed in different ways, all didn't really come out of left movements at all, and all were kind of trying to glom on to and appropriate to an extent these people in movements. So there was never really that candidate. I mean, that's the truth of it. And I do think had a different candidate come along, like Susan mentioned, Jamani Williams, the public advocate, he probably would have been a very strong candidate as a black man with a base in the outer boroughs, also with a base with white progressives. He could have probably built a winning coalition. AOC herself will never run for mayor. I should never, but I don't think she will. She certainly would be a strong candidate for mayor, right? There were possibilities, but the candidate was never there. And if the candidate is not there, there's only so much you can do. So there's a lot there that I want to unpack. First of all, just why not? Why doesn't the left have a strong candidate running in this big mayoral election? From my understanding, there should have been work done in coalition to recruit a candidate, but that work just didn't happen. Perhaps because the left in New York has been focused on state politics for such a long time. So I'm someone who is obsessed with Andrew Cuomo. I share that with Ross. He has done a lot to limit the possibility for progressive politics in New York City because the state actually controls quite a lot. So things like CUNY funding, MTA, like the ability to raise taxes and rent and other kinds of housing-related policies. So we were all focused on Albany and we successfully elected a number of DSA-backed and progressive candidates in 2020 and 2018, right? Getting rid of the IDC is actually how I met Ross. And for those who aren't familiar with New York politics, that's the Independent Democratic Caucus that was essentially caucusing with Republicans. And so we were all focused on state politics for so long. And in 2020, we were obsessed with getting all these progressive candidates because we had so much work to do at state level. So our focus was probably ill-placed. We didn't focus on municipal elections Honestly, as somebody in 2020, as naive, pre-COVID, my perspective, I just assumed it was going to be, you know, Scott Stringer versus Eric Adams, and we'll see who wins, right? So it would be like a center-left, center-right, vaguely, but only for New York City perspectives. Candidates run against each other. We didn't see Andrew Yang sort of throwing his celebrity status in and confusing things quite a lot. But I think that that's part of the reason why we don't see that strong left candidates. 
this has been a time of learning a lot of lessons. And that's one of the lessons that we learned, which is that we should think about recruiting our own candidates from our own movements. My own history is I grew up in New York City, grew up in Brooklyn, still live there. And I've been covering politics really since 2012. I started as a local reporter in Queens. So I've seen kind of the 2010s trajectory of this. And what I can say is the left is very young in New York City. And it sounds odd to say that you think of New York City like, oh, my God, you know, progressive city. But when I started writing about politics and and for a long time, the left was Democrats And then sometimes the Working Families Party and organized labor would run kind of a left of center candidate against an establishment candidate. Like that was it. There was no such thing as DSA, no such thing as these like activist grassroots groups. It was really like Working Families Party and their associated like NGOs and then the Democratic Party and and these sort of like outer borough counting machines. That was how it was done. Post-2016, this radically changes. DSA adds tons of members. You know, you have AOC's victory. Julia Salazar becomes the first DSA member in the state Senate. It defeats an incumbent. And then 2020, more DSA members join the state legislature. So you're really talking about a four or five year period. So I've said this on Twitter and I'll say it here. The 2029 mayoral race will be a much healthier one for leftists, for socialists, for even like left of center people, because there's a big bench that's being built but it's just being built. The minor leagues for kind of the socialist and left wing of the Democratic Party in New York City is like really strong. There's like tons of prospects, like new state senators, assembly members. There'll be new city council members after this cycle, but they've just been elected. So it it takes time to run a mayor's race. It's very expensive, even with public matching funds. You've got to raise close to $10 million and you've got to be fundraising for years ahead of time. So when Susan said Scott Stringer versus Eric Adams, that was kind of the logical assumption because they'd been raising money for years. I think had Stringer not had his sexual assault allegation, which was never substantiated, it would probably be Scott Stringer versus Eric Adams versus Andrew Yang right now. Instead, Garcia and Wiley have kind of slipped into the vacuum that Stringer left when he had that allegation. I want to pick up on something that you said, Susan, which is that New York City is in crisis and that it's voting like a city in crisis. And of course, before Michael Bloomberg was elected as a Republican in 9-11, Rudy Giuliani was elected as a Republican during the 90s when there were high crime rates. And you said that this is kind of framing from the media and candidates. In polling, we also do see that crime and public safety tops main concerns for voters in basically every poll. About half of New Yorkers said that it should be a top priority for the next mayor of New York City. And that's not New York specific in a way. We're seeing rising crime rates around the country. So I'm wondering, is it just difficult for the left to compete in an environment where there are rising crime rates or the country feels like it's in a time of crisis, like dealing with COVID or the aftermath of COVID? And if that is a challenge for the left, how do you address it? How do you overcome that challenge? So this is an interesting question that kind of demonstrates the limitations of polling in my mind, because this is something that Ross has also talked about before. Defund polls badly. But then if you sort of break down what defund is, which is that New York City has like a really high police budget, six to seven billion dollars a year. And we have a lot of unmet funding needs like social services, like housing, like youth employment. If we took some of that money away from the police and put it towards these social services, would that be something you support? And then majority of people in New York City do support it when you break down what defund means. So I don't Mm -hmm. think that left and progressive policies are impossible to promote during periods of 
economic crisis, during periods of other kinds of emergencies. I think what's been a failure is an attempt to discuss these in a more nuanced manner, which is something I can do at doors. It's something I can do when I catch people on the phone. And then people are like, oh yeah. Like I actually told a fellow parent recently this thing about New York City's police budget because he was like, I know Susan, you hate police. And I told him, well, you know, this is the actual budget. And he was actually shocked. And he's a pretty high information voter. You know, he started swearing. He's like, really? That much? So to me, there's a misunderstanding of how to communicate these um, ideas effectively. Whereas the media and people who have a lot of money and who are well-funded and want to support the police are able to get their message across, which is that New York City feels dangerous and you should support a candidate that's going to invest in the police. And I don't think that that necessarily means that people think that the police and police funding is the only way to deal with this public safety crisis. So you're saying that there isn't a concern amongst New Yorkers of crime and public safety and that it's kind of driven from the top down? No, no, no. There is a concern. I'm just saying that people agreeing that what we should do is necessarily invest further in the NYPD or not cut their funding is not necessarily something that has a consensus or shared understanding. I think that people often just use the tools they have in front of them, which is increase police funding or not increase police funding as the only solutions, because that's what gets presented to them by the media and by politicians. I think that's why Diane Morales actually had quite a lot of support. She wasn't going to win, but a lot of traction was that she was one of the few people who was talking about defunding the police in a way that really excited a lot of young people and other communities that felt that their needs were not being properly funded. Right. I think Dan Morales maxed out in the polling in the relatively low single digits. And I am looking at a poll here from Ipsos showing that 72% of New Yorkers said that the NYPD should put more officers on the streets. So I'm wondering, is it a challenge of the left is not presenting this idea in a way that is palatable and emphasizing the defund the police or abolish the police message? Or is it truly just from the top down, from Eric Adams, from the press, et cetera? I do think that New Yorkers are really concerned about crime and safety. And I do think older voters in particular are very concerned about it because they remember high crime New York. So you do have a divide, like I'm too young to remember high crime New York, but my parents do. Um, and these are people who avoided the subway for years. There is definitely a cleavage generationally between those who remember the 70s and 80s. And when these are invoked by candidates, people reflexively think, yes, more police. The truth is, I do think, generally speaking, the idea of putting more police in the subways is a fairly popular idea. Whether it's effective or not, we can debate that. I don't think it's effective. Crime and shootings are an issue. I'm not really convinced subway crime is a major issue. So I do think crime and public safety is a big issue, and I do think a lot of people care about it. That being said, I do think left candidates can win in this environment. I mean, if there was a strong left candidate running right now, that candidate would be doing quite well. You know, I go back to Jamani Williams, who is someone who's talked a lot about gun violence. You know, he represented a part of Brooklyn that has been plagued by gun violence for many years. So he's, he's been on kind of this police reform kick. Defund is tricky, right? I think Susan and I agree on the point that the brand doesn't pull well, but when you break it down, it does better. I think the issue is in politics, branding is often the thing that matters because you have to speak in sound bites, you have to speak in 30 seconds. Like Medicare for All is like a very nice brand. It sounds great, give everyone healthcare, legalize same-sex marriage. We know what it means. Defund has this challenge where you have to break it down and then it means different things to different people. You have the abolished police faction. There are people who say, no, 
I don't mean defund, I mean get rid of all police everywhere. And that is a position that will never be politically feasible. It'll never sell and it will never succeed in any major American city ever, to be frank. But, you know, defund is a more nuanced point. And people support police reform. Bill de Blasio won in 2013 talking about reforming the practice of stop and frisk, dialing back the abuses from the Bloomberg era. People aren't crying out for Bloomberg Giuliani style policing. I think the same time working class and poor communities don't want the disappearance of police, especially with shootings rising, with gang violence, with this feeling that criminals won't be held accountable. You know, you have a friend who gets shot and killed. You want the police to hold that person accountable. So it is kind of a nuanced thing. You brought up another element of this New York City mayoral race that we should get into. And of course, Susan, you mentioned crisis. That's a huge part of our politics in America right now. Another part of specifically New York City politics that doesn't apply elsewhere is Bill de Blasio. Bill de Blasio ran as a progressive candidate back in 2013. And he has not been particularly popular in the most recent Ipsos polling. I see his net approval is at negative 10. To what extent is this race somewhat of a backlash to Bill de Blasio's tenure? I think it both is and isn't a backlash. Part of it definitely is. Eight years of kind of a center-left mayor who was perceived as incompetent, though. You know, his mayorality was mixed. He had some, like, major policy successes that everyone universally celebrates. That's universal pre-K. The candidates celebrate it. They want to build on it. Even the, the so-called moderates want to improve childcare options for poor people, for working class people. Like that's a very popular idea. So a lot of his ideas are actually quite popular. You know, the man himself, it's mixed. Like his polling numbers are always pretty good with black voters and mixed with Latinos and then dismal with whites, like both white moderates and white liberals are in this anti de Blasio coalition of like hating him for different reasons. The white moderates think he's a radical Marxist. The white liberals are mad that he seems goofy and they read about him in the New York Times and go, ew, right? I do think depending on who wins this race, you will see de Blasio nostalgia. I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna call that right now. I, I think if they have Eric Adams in particular wins in 2023 or four or so, there'll be people pining for the clear center-left mayorality of Bill de Blasio. I agree in many ways. So Ross said that in politics is all about branding. Bill de Blasio's brand is like, frankly, a little bit of a buffoon. But in fact, he's been really effective at many things. One of the things he doesn't get credit for is actually opening the largest school district during the pandemic that a lot of other major cities were not able to do relatively successfully and relatively safely. So both of my kids go to school and San Francisco, all these other major cities were not able to do so. So he was able to negotiate with the unions. He was able to negotiate with all these health concerns. He doesn't get credit for that. And that actually did quite a lot to help New York City get back on its feet, help a lot of people go back to work. And Universal 3K is amazing. And despite the fact he, he did that that's going to be universal next year. So that's like the end of a pandemic. A lot of things that de Blasio has done have been great. And I think that he has changed how we discuss what's important for our city. And I feel de Blasio nostalgia right now, frankly, because 2013 was, as Ross said, a time when the left was very small and babyish and weak in New York City. And he won handily with 40% plus of the vote in a crowded primary, which did not look like he was going to win. So what's different between 2021 and 20, 
13, we have more of a left presence. We have more of an organized left. We have a lot more left electoral victories. So that's why when people try to say the left is not doing well in New York in 2021, I'm just like, you can't use this mayoral race as a litmus test for anything because we have much more strength and political power. And as Ross said, the center-right candidates are defining what's important to them based on what the left has put on the political agenda. And that's very important to note. There are many reasons the moment is different and more challenges that I kind of want to talk about and get your opinions on when it comes to progressive politics. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Susan, you mentioned this idea that I've heard pretty frequently, and we've talked about on this podcast, that even oftentimes when the left may be losing elections, they're essentially winning the war or winning the debate because the debate is happening on their terms. Establishment Democrats have moved significantly to the left on a whole host of issues even if they're the ones who ultimately win. But part of the way that it seems like they do that is they kind of pick the left's most popular positions, like higher taxes on the rich and corporations, raising the minimum wage and things like that, and then loudly rejecting the left's unpopular positions, like abolishing ICE or decriminalizing crossing the border, defunding the police, things like that that we've talked about. And so I'm curious, do you see that as a challenge for the left that establishment Democrats are taking their popular ideas and bashing their unpopular ideas, whereas real left candidates, in order to attract the DSA and young progressive voters, kind of have to be straight down the line progressive. Do you just see that as a good thing that, you know, okay, it's fine if establishment Democrats win on your ideas, or do you think that it's a challenge that progressives have to overcome? That's a good question. I think it's also an issue of scale. So if we're thinking about the presidency, that's a very different race than if we're thinking about congressional districts. We can have people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We can have people like Jamal Bowman who have these really strong left positions, aren't able to introduce legislation that really changes the conversation about certain things, and they're always changing what's possible. So 
a couple of years ago, a bunch of left organizations supported something called public power in which the public utilities would be owned and democratically controlled. And that was like a crazy idea. And then we had a, a series of terrible blackouts. And then all of a sudden de Blasio was like, maybe we should have public ownership of Con Ed. And then in this race, it's one of the major issues that all the mayoral candidates are discussing. So if I'm correct, I believe even Eric Adams is open to the possibility. Again, does this make him a right candidate, a center-right candidate, or does it make him somebody who's influenced by the left? And then, you know, recently Jamal Bowman put forward a public power bill in Congress. So I see what you're saying about some being popular, some are not, but having these left victories changes what's popular and what's not popular. So I don't see these things as existing in permanent positions, right? So I just saw something in the Times today about how climate change is like destroying the West Coast already with record temperatures and drought. As changing material conditions exist, then political orientations to what seem like radical and unthinkable policies are going to become increasingly popular and gain a winning coalition of support. So I guess I don't think about whether or not that's good or bad. I'm just going to continue plugging away for the things I think that our communities absolutely need. One point that people in DSA have made to me, which is compelling, which is we're, we're still moving the conversation on policing. And I think to an extent that it's true. So I think in terms of leftists and activists, like you have to push ideas out there. Generally speaking, left economic ideas are always a safe bet. I think moderates in swing districts should run on big money spending ideas, like giving people money. The stimulus checks were like wildly popular. Donald Trump almost got elected president again because he gave people free money. Like everyone, conservatives, moderates, liberals, they want the social safety net expanded. Really no one, unless really rich people or like really reactionary people who are like a pretty small part of the electorate don't want to see a bigger social safety net. The Biden child tax credit. Republicans are terrified that's going to be made permanent because you won't be able to take it away. It's going to be super popular. People are getting money for having kids. Like it'll be great. So the left definitely needs to like push these big ideas. Certainly on the economic side, there are other ideas that I think there's debates over like immigration, policing. But I think from the activist perspective, you have to keep pushing. You must do that. And then for the politician, you kind of have to evaluate how do you frame an issue? I think framing is super important too. We go back to defund other issues. I think Medicare for all, changing it from single payer to Medicare for all was a great idea. I don't know if that was Bernie himself, whoever came up with it. That was a great example of framing. How varied in your beliefs and in your platform can you be and be a progressive? For me, it's the class critique. Racial justice politics are incredibly important. I think they're incredibly easy to appropriate. You see major corporations like Nike, Amazon, Walmart, and so on and so forth, who speak the language without doing anything, speak the language of racial justice. And so I do think when you're looking for these candidates, it's like, what have you done? Do you come from a movement? This critique of capitalism is important. And the really investment in building like a multiracial working class coalition around these shared economic struggles. I do think that's very key. That's what distinguishes the left from the non-left, because the non-left will say, well, we'll get diversity trainings and we'll get people to think differently and the corporations will be nice and that's it. And an actual left candidate says, no, you've got to go try to unionize these corporations. You have to actually try to change the economic structure. That pushback against predatory capitalism is very key to defining a left candidate. If you don't have that class critique, I don't think you really belong on the left. So this poses an interesting, I think, challenge for 
progressive movements, the left, in that Eric Adams, who you've described as center-right, former Republican, former police officer, you know, has secured most of the endorsements from labor unions across the city. Why isn't labor, which the left was born out of, supporting left candidates? Organized labor is strong in New York. It's not strong nationally at all, but it's strong in New York. Labor unions support incumbent or incumbent-like candidates. They support candidates they have relationships with. They support candidates they think are going to win. Like, I myself have been in labor endorsement interviews. Like, I know how they go. And it's not like a DSA interview where they're vetting you and trying to really see, like, are you a movement person? Like, do you share our values? I mean, they do. You get a labor questionnaire. They do all that. But decisions are not made democratically. They're made by leadership. My opponent in my race got endorsed by the state teachers union. I never even got interviewed by the state teachers union. And I was a certified public school teacher and I've taught in public school. So a big challenge for the left, for DSA, is to be a bigger part of the labor movement, is to build coalitions with labor. I think that's very, very important. I think at the same time, you have to be clear-eyed and recognized in New York and anywhere else where labor unions have some strength they're going to support an incumbent-like candidate. Andrew Cuomo has always been the candidate of labor in all of his races. That's because he's the governor of New York State. He controls all the purse strings. He is inordinately powerful. No labor union is going to go against the politician who is setting the wages of their members. I mean, that's just the fact. And Eric Adams has been in office for many years. He's a former police captain. He's known to them. He's a known quantity. And they feel he'll probably win. And they're not wrong. If I ran a giant municipal union, I would probably feel pressure to endorse Eric Adams. I mean, this is the guy I have to negotiate with for the next eight years, potentially. So that's just the reality of politics. And DSA has worked in tandem with labor. DSA has also worked against labor. DSA has beaten labor. Labor has worked with DSA. So these tensions will continue. But there's that fundamental reality that labor is going to support incumbents or incumbent-like candidates. Labor does not necessarily endorse in the same way in city council elections. So the candidates that I'm doing work on, the DSA candidates, they support things like defund. They have strong positions that go against the kind of things that maybe Eric Adams would support. And they're endorsed by a lot of the same labor unions. So when I'm on the doors, I'll mention this labor. So I was talking to somebody in NYCHA houses, and I mentioned that my candidate was endorsed by labor, and she wanted to know which union. And I said, 11, I include 1199. And she's like, I always vote whatever 1199 tells me because I'm a former member. So organized labor has a different relationship in how it endorses executives versus how it endorses legislatures, legislative seats. So that's what's going to be interesting about this race is we're going to see a lot of left progressive victories at the city council and perhaps have one of the most left progressive city councils that the city has had in many years, which may reproduce this dynamic that's a lot more combative with whoever the next mayor is, if it is, in fact, Eric Adams. And then also the other thing, too, is that from my perspective as a public sector union member, Eric Adams, as a former police captain, probably accepts public sector unions in a way that somebody like the other frontrunner, Andrew Yang, may not. You mentioned that one of the goals of the progressive left is to create a cross-racial working class coalition. And in New York, it seems like it's really struggled to do that in more recent races. So this is a little bit of a preview, but here at 538, my colleague Nathaniel Rakich went through every single assembly district in the city and looked at how it voted in Democratic primaries over the past five or so years when, for example, Cynthia Nixon was challenging Andrew Cuomo for governor, 
Zephyr Teachout was running as well, and Sanders versus Clinton, et cetera. There are several races that pit moderates versus progressives. And then also looked at the assembly districts in terms of education and racial makeup and so on. And what we saw is that where progressives are really succeeding are actually in the places that we think of as elite circles within New York City. Actually, Manhattan, places like Williamsburg and Greenpoint in Brooklyn, places like Long Island City in Queens, places that are majority white. And actually, a majority of the population has a college degree. That kind of area is the only place where we saw Zephyr Teachout win. It's the only place where we saw Cynthia Nixon win. And we see that in many of the other parts of New York City that have larger numbers of voters of color, lower levels of four-year degrees, we see establishment candidates overwhelmingly doing well. So how does the progressive movement break through that? I, on one hand, have been critical of the left myself of not doing more to reach these working class, low income communities, these communities with less education. I do think groups like DSA should be trying to build power out in East New York and Brownsville, you know, going deeper into Queens. I think that's all very true. I hesitate with the Cuomo versus Nixon, Cuomo versus Teachout splits because it was such an asymmetry. We have the worst campaign finance laws in America, in New York. Andrew Cuomo in his last primary spent $27 million. Cynthia Nixon spent two. So, you know, an establishment candidate spending far more money is going to do well in a lot of these districts. Like, that's just a fact. There was never really a race of parity run. You know, even Clinton versus Sanders in 2016, the Sanders campaign was not very strong in New York at all. Hillary Clinton had the support of like every institutional actor in the state and she won. So you've had this asymmetry for a long time. I do think DSA is getting better at this. It's definitely true that DSA's greatest successes have been in gentrifying quarters of the city. But you saw last year, for example, the state Senate victory of Jabari Brisport, which spanned a lot of different ADs. He obliterated his opponent and won, I think, the AD of the assembly member that he was running against. I'd have to double check that, but he he did pretty well in these more working class black areas. So DSA in particular is very young. They're growing and really trying to reach out and do more in these communities. So I think, yes, I mean, when you're first building, you have an easier time reaching educated voters. These are the people who are online. These are the people who maybe are glomming onto these ideas. The left must do more to reach working class communities of color, 100%. I also think some of these races that you look at in the data, there were inordinate differences in the amount of money spent, in the support candidates had. And so I think that must be taken into account. So I will want to speak about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's victory in 2018, though it includes gentrifying communities like Astoria and where I live in Jackson Heights. She did very well in certain communities that were mostly Latinx. But a lot of it did break down, as you suggested, in 2018. Some of these higher turnout areas with more white populations and higher levels of education. But by 2020, in which she was a known entity, she'd been present in the community by two years, you could see that her appeal was wide and across the board. A lot of the ADs and electoral districts where she hadn't done, where Crowley had won. So white Crowley had done better, in especially some of the, the Black communities in like Corona she now dominated. So we saw a difference after AOC had been in the community and been present for two years. So to me, it's about running candidates who have trust in a community and then bring this message. And ultimately, like, it's much easier for the DSA and for other groups to win an electoral race in something like a congressional or state Senate or an assembly race, because 
our appeal is talking to voters at the door. I've gone and talked to people and they said, well, you're the only person in this race who's come and talked to me or called me. And so I'm going to take this very seriously. Right now we're GOTV and somebody said to me on the phone yesterday, somebody in Eastern Queens, you volunteers have done your job because you've called me, you texted me, I've gotten handwritten postcards, I've gotten mailers, right? So we have a field game that works. We have a message that works, but the mayor's race, the governor's race, I mean, one of the things I tell myself when I get frustrated about the mayor's race is that the mayor's race in New York has to appeal to a population that's greater than a lot of European countries. And a lot of these European countries have prime ministers because there's such a diversity of political orientations that it works better to have many parties working coalition to create a prime minister that appeals to this. And we don't have that in New York, right? So we just have like a mess. To be able to set up a field operation that would appeal to this very large potential voter pool is something that we haven't done yet because as Ross says, we're young, but we can win congressional districts, we can win state Senate districts, and we can see how these victories are translating into other kinds of victories along the way. So the last thing I want to touch on here in terms of challenges that the left might need to overcome is that it seems like a lot of the energy around left candidates came after Donald Trump was elected and voters basically said, OK, so the establishment wasn't able to beat Donald Trump. And so there was some rejection of the establishment and moving left ideologically of just rank and file Democratic voters. And then a lot of people who are getting involved in politics to try to elect people. You said that the lessons of the New York mayoral race are probably only applicable to New York, and in many ways they are, but we have also seen in other primaries around the country, and most recently the Virginia House of Delegates, some left candidates, incumbents even lose there. Of course, we saw Terry McAuliffe win the Democratic primary there, again, somewhat of an incumbency and cash advantage. Melanie Stansbury in New Mexico. So I'm curious, do you get the sense that post-Trump, it is a challenge to get the energy behind left candidates that was there when Trump was in office? In New York, I don't think so, because on the local level, with the DSA slate, DSA is running six city council campaigns, and Susan can speak to this. They've got the most volunteers. I mean, even in races they might lose, like right now, DSA is running a very aggressive, tough race in a part of Queens that's quite suburban, kind of Eastern Queens, it's actually moderate in orientation. They're running a very good candidate out there that has tons of volunteers, more than any other campaign. She has a lot of energy. She may not win, but the energy is there. And I think in these city council races where DSA is invested, there is no shortage of volunteers or energy. I think that's all still there as the organization matures. Nationally, sure, there's always a fall off and kind of enthusiasm with the foil out of power, Trump being gone, you know, the casual voter, the casual volunteer may be less motivated. Like that's just the reality, right? But undoubtedly the Trump victory and then Bernie's first campaign fueled the rise of the left. I think that's inarguable, you know, Bernie running, Trump winning, these two things together created this explosion of energy. The membership roles haven't gone down though. And while maybe the energy isn't crackling quite like it was in 2017, for example, there are a lot of volunteers who are coming out in these races. And of the six city council candidates DSA is running, they're going to win probably half of them, maybe more. I mean, they, they went four for four in the state legislature last year, which was something I think was beyond the hopes and dreams of many. But even these city council races, some of them are quite tough. And I think DSA could at least bat 500 in them. And even the ones where they lose, there will be a lot of people knocking on doors and making phone calls. I think from a sociological perspective, one of the things that the Trump presidency did was it made a lot of people, including myself, think I need to get more involved in local politics. And so that's now something that's part of people's identities. Even if Trump 
is no longer president. So it's like, oh, it's primary season. I'm going to do a lot of work around GOTV is now something people think that that's something that I do. So politics has become a huge part of a lot of people's identities, and that's not going away. The other reason why I don't think the left is going to die down, even if as we see some victories for moderates in other parts of the country, which I don't pay that much attention to because I'm so focused on New York right now, is that a lot of the social problems that motivated a Trump victory and motivate people to call themselves socialists, they've not been solved. Sure, we all love to see Biden pushing forth these big, ambitious tax and spend kind of bills. Like, we truly love to see it. But we have more poverty and we have more inequality and we have a lot of these social problems that still exist, right? So one of the things as a political scientist that I'm curious about is that polling for democracy is at an all-time low. And so if we care about democracy, we have to address this inequality. And that's one of the things that political scientists take as one of our like unwritten rules is that you can't have democracy that sustains itself with high inequality. So until we solve these problems, the left is still needed because they're the only ones that propose solutions that aren't just throw people in jail and, you know, cage all the immigrants coming in. We're proposing solutions that are moving beyond this in a way that recognizes people's shared humanity. And that is something that appeals to a lot of people. Unfortunately, it appeals to a lot of young people who don't vote because as the polls have shown, a lot of them don't think voting is very important. So there's a big road ahead of us. And finally, the Democratic Party, if Alyssa wants to lose spectacularly in 2022, has to recognize the importance that the left wing brings. So for better or for worse. We've talked a lot here about timing, different challenges facing the left within the Democratic Party, whether or not its positions have majority support. And a lot of your commentary has focused on the future. Ross, you said check back in in 2029 and see who is doing well in the New York City mayoral race then. Susan, you focused on younger people who don't vote, but perhaps as people get older, they do vote. So when do you think that the left will be viable in big general elections like the New York mayoral race, but also in statewide races for governor or Senate, or maybe even the presidential election. Presumably that's a long-term goal for the left. I'll give you the scenario. Kathleen Garcia becomes mayor and governs as kind of like a technocratic moderate. I think she'd be ripe for a primary. I think it's going to be hard to primary and Eric Adams as a black mayor, given you really need to do well in the black community and Latino community to like win a primary. He'd be very tough to primary, but if a Kathleen Garcia won, you could probably run a viable challenge against her. The left bench in New York is growing a lot. Jamal Bowman's another person, won just last year. Jamal Bowman, the sky's kind of the limit for him. He'd be a great statewide candidate. He's progressive, he's black, he's dynamic. He represents part of New York City. Jamal Bowman could move to New York City and run for mayor. If Jamal Bowman like literally cravenly moved to New York City, because I think he lives in Westchester, to like run for mayor in 2021, he might be winning. Like a black former principal who's like super progressive, like very compelling. Like that's a great mayoral candidate. That's a great gubernatorial candidate. Mondaire Jones, another person kind of on the left, just won in Congress. He profiles a great statewide candidate. And of course, AOC. I've said before, I got a lot of people angry last year. I said she could force Gillibrand to retire and take the Senate seat. And people are like, how dare you say that about Kirsten Gillibrand? Chuck Schumer, he's a man. You're not going to beat Chuck Schumer in a primary. But Kirsten Gillibrand has a very weak standing in New York State. I think AOC announced the Senate campaign in like a year or two from now. I think Gillibrand, run at your own peril. Like, I think that'd be a tough one for her. So there's a lot of people who are kind of on the bench that I do think could end up a governor one day, could end up a mayor one day. So I think that time is coming probably in the 2020s, certainly in the 2030s. 
So what I'm hearing you say is basically not now, but within two years? I think what you're hearing from me is an open mayoral race in 2029, absolutely. AOC for Senate in 24, I think is doable if she wants to do it. Someone like Jamal Bowman, someone like Mondaire Jones, they're kind of like waiting for their big race. I think if it's there, they'll take it. So there will be opportunities with politics. A lot of it's luck and timing, but the bench is there now. The bench wasn't there for a decade. The bench has now been built. Now it will be time for these candidates to fundraise and to really build those big coalitions and go and win. So I think it's coming soon. Like I said, if you have like a white, moderate kind of weak mayor, that could be primary in four years. So stay tuned for that as well. You never know. Jumani Williams is another person who could be a successful statewide candidate. And also, not to toot DSA's horn too much, Jabari Brisport is someone who could probably succeed in a few years to run. You told me Jabari was a mayor of New York City in 10 to 15 years from now. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I mean, we have the talent. We need to build the infrastructure. But that's the thing is that the medium matters as well as the message. And the left doesn't have great mediums running for mayor this year. And, you know, with full respect to all the work and expertise that the people who are putting themselves as progressive candidates have done in the past, that is just clear to all of us, which is why people ask me all the time how I feel about the mayor's race. And I just kind of like sigh. And that's before all the scandals came out. And so this has been a lackluster race of not extremely talented candidates across the board, which is why the front runners have been moving around. And therefore, like I said, not a good litmus test for much of anything, except for what happens in a crowded mayoral race during a pandemic. When you institute ranked choice voting for the first time, you have a lot of like middling political talents running. That's what you get, right? You get something (laughs) like that's not really clear. So I'm going to go ahead and say that the only thing that this is a test of is how well the Board of Elections is able to implement a, a very significant voting reform during a pandemic. Which we should mention, people will have to hold their horses because we may not know the result of this election for a long time. But just to put a button on it, can you give me a sense of when do you agree with Ross's timeline when you see the left really competing seriously in democratic politics? Or like someone like Jabari Brisport, I'm totally creating a future for him. Borough president 2029, run for mayor eight years from there. And you'd just be taking the Eric Adams path to mayorality, except he'd be like, charismatic and compelling and really exciting to people. So it's just like, there's a lot of paths out there. My friend Zoran actually ran my state Senate campaign is now in the state assembly. Zoran, Queensborough president, mayor himself. There's so many of these like charismatic, compelling people who just got into office, who I think in the next 10 to 20 years are just going to be in position to win municipal contests. Yes, I agree. But like if Jumani Williams wanted to run for governor against Andrew Cuomo, then Yeah, I think that that could be very competitive. And despite Cuomo's huge fundraising advantage, he's quite weak, not weak enough to resign. Unfortunately, those of us who don't like Andrew Cuomo, we're hoping that his scandals would be sufficient. But, you know, he really is digging in his heels. But I think he's weakened. So that'll be a very interesting thing to see to what extent that he faces primary challenges or if he just decides not to run again. And then if it's an open race, who knows? I think Cuomo can be beaten in a primary. You need a black candidate. You have to run a black candidate to win in New York City. Jamani Williams would be good. Tish James, the attorney general, not of the left like Jamani is, but is someone who I think could beat Cuomo in a primary. She would not be a victory for like the DSA left at all. More of like a center left, kind of more moderate orientation. But Jamani, Tish, they can potentially defeat Cuomo. You're going to have to raise a ton of money. Campaign finance laws are horrendous, but the path to beating him is just winning Blacks and Latinos in New York City and a charismatic, compelling Black candidate with roots in those areas can cut a path through Andrew Cuomo. 
So I will say, related to what you're talking about, going back to the numbers that my colleague Nathaniel Rakich crunched, the only progressive left candidate to win citywide over the time period that we looked at was Jumani Williams. And it was because he won both the elite whites of Manhattan and the parts of Queens and Brooklyn that are involved in the movement that Bernie Sanders started, and very much more moderate Black voters in the outer boroughs. So that seems to be the challenge for the progressives, and we will see if they overcome it. But let's leave it there for now. So thank you, Susan King and Ross Barkin. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Galen Druk. Claire Bidigari Curtis is on audio editing. She's also in the control room along with our intern, Emma Riley, and Benton Stevens is on video editing. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.